Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to Part Date. You might be sat on a sweaty train or in a crumbling Victorian hovel, but for the next insert number of minutes, please, we'll be taking you back to nature. Because in each episode, we'll rip up the podcast rulebook and kidnap, well, lead, a different guest to their favourite local park. And there we'll talk about the things that they like to do. So pack a picnic blanket. Try saying that after a few Proseccos. I guarantee to you, lucky listener, is that this episode will contain one or more of the following. Ice cream, swings, grass, dog walkers, drunks, canoodling couples, a possible mugging, and fun in the sun, unless it rains. So join me, Christopher Beanland. Yes, that is my real name, and a special guest as we try to create the perfect park date. couldn't imagine a more Aussie scene as a man in a pub eating a meat pie, the skyline of Sydney rising in the distance, the harbour bridge poking itself above a headland, and a swim race taking place. These people have been swimming from Bondi all the way round to Watson's Bay, and if you know Sydney Harbour, you'll know that that's a long way. I would have done this had I known, um, but... I feel like it would have taken me a long time. I'd probably be doing it tomorrow. Um, but the people that are finishing today are being applauded as they walk up the beach. I am here, though, to introduce an episode which took place in the USA. It's a special episode of the podcast, and the title of it is Too Many Chrises. The podcast features Chris Grimley, architect designer and accomplished author. Chris uh, is a man who has a a lot of uh, different talents and a lot of different interests and we talked about everything from Liverpool Football Club to the marvellous Mrs Maisel. But the thing that we talked about more than anything was brutalist architecture. Chris wrote a book with his colleagues over under a design agency and they looked at the brutalist architecture of mid-century Boston 
and they called the book Heroic. They were trying to look at the term brutalism and come up with something which was maybe a bit more fitting for that style of architecture. Chris Beanland is a failed comedy writer who has been emotionally blackmailed into starting an ill-advised podcast. Chris Beanland did a book talk at Chris Brimley's gallery, Pink Homer, and after that, the two met at Peter's Park in Boston, where they had the conversation that you're about to hear. If you like this special Too Many Chris's episode, and you want more Chris's, or you want more American content, let me know. Leave a review, rate, subscribe, and check out the socials part date podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Do enjoy this episode all the way from USA. Welcome to Boston, Massachusetts. I'm here in Peters Park in Boston South End with Chris Grimley. Uh, Chris is a fantastic writer, designer, architect. And we were just talking a second ago about the idea of, you know, when you have different hats on and uh, me and Chris were talking about Nick Cave and how, yeah, Nick Cave is kind of thinking about those things as well, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. what do you refer and, to yourself as yeah like how do you define yourself at this yeah. moment and you know as someone entering the you know the second half of the century it's like i don't i don't know what to call myself anymore <laughs> other, other than someone who lives so <laughs> which is better than the alternative <laughs> yeah someone so, who's not <laughs> <laughs> the alternative is much worse quite frankly exactly so. That's, exactly. Something, that's something to say amen for yeah. let's have a stroll around the park chris yeah, absolutely. Um, What's um, what's good about Peter's Park? I mean, it's it's really kind of spring-like. There's blossom falling. Well, you've got you've got every so as an expat Brit, yeah, Canadian living in America. You've lived all over. Who, well, in very limited ways, um, who's who's lived here since '99. This park has really uh, transformed over the 20 plus years that I've been here. I've like been in this neighborhood for that 20 years mm. first working for an architecture office called Machado Spetti which was a couple blocks in here and then living a few blocks away with my now wife um, my office is around the corner uh, the grocery store is over there like our businesses are here our house is nearby um, so this park has been a real yeah. focus for the growth of our businesses and families and we've seen it transform with the neighborhood um, I was I did a little bit of pre-research about why this park is here because um, I knew you were coming over mm. and it turns out that this this park is is a result of urban renewal right. <laughs> which, which is what uh, we were talking about yesterday which is, yeah, yeah exactly but um the Peters were a, fa a Syrian family. This the street that we're near right now, Shamit, um, was a largely Greek and Syrian 
uh, enclave for a good number of years in Boston's evolution, Boston's history. Um, it, it housed a, a large population of, of immigrant migrant families and, and had uh, you know, restaurants, grocery stores, um, clubs, speakeasies, everything that was on here. Uh, and the park was, was populated with buildings at one point um, and a fire at, at some point in the early 1900s uh, created a large open space and in the 50s and 60s it was codified into a park. The Peters family, Syrian, um, the, the mother, the matriarch of the family, I'll probably get the history wrong, but the matriarch of the family really wanted it to remain an open space as opposed to a site for development. Uh, and so it, it, it stayed that way, and in, in the mid-70s it was named after them and, and has become like a, a kind of a, a central focus for the neighborhood. Uh, it kind of sits between two streets, Shamit, that were And then Washington near, over here, isn't it? And Washington over there. And Washington is um, historically what is referred to as the neck of Boston, so what we're standing on... Uh, you know, a few hundred years ago was water, uh, except for a spit of land which ran down the length of Washington. And Washington Street um, also was the site of an elevated highway in the city of Boston. So the Orange Line would run down this street, and there's there's a really uh, the subway. Uh, the orange, orange elevated subway, subway yeah, like yeah, yeah. like Chicago. There's right. not many of them yeah, yeah. left in Boston. Well, there's none of them left in Boston. Most of them have been torn down, except mm-hmm. for a new Green Line extension uh, just to to ward Somerville. Um, but the the elevated highway really made this this part of Boston um, a difficult place for development and a difficult place for um, what we might call gentrification to happen. But a very vibrant and and uh, alive neighborhood um, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, the fantastic, or the not fantastic part of it, but the the religious background on it, it was that Boston was then ruled by majority Protestant population. Um, the Catholic Church sits somewhere, you know, about half a mile away from us. Uh, the elevated line ran through this neighborhood. The main stop is a little bit uh, near us, which is a street called Berkeley Street. There was a you know a station there. The next station stop was a few mile, like well, a mile and a bit down the down the road. So there was really the access to this neighborhood was completely cut off mm. for decades. Um, but this neighborhood, sorry, the the park itself has. Uh, changed in the 20 years that I've that I've been here in, in ways that I couldn't have foreseen and today you're um, seeing it pretty much as it's intended to be yeah. occupied there's um, there's a kids playground there's some basketball courts there's a tennis court there's a dog run uh, there's also a baseball field and little league baseball is in, in full action and we should walk over there so you get some yeah. like bat hits and things <laughs> and honestly as a as a as a non-interested ba- non non baseball fan um, little league is really the only thing that is is uh, incredibly valuable valuable to watch because um, the number of hits and runs 
make it an exciting game in a way yeah. that well, <laughs> professional I'm, baseball doesn't. I'm actually off to Fenway after this to, oh, wa- to watch the Red Sox, but the last time I saw a ball game... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a kid in a Celtics strip over yeah, here. Yeah, a kid in a Celtics strip. But like the proper Celtics strip, the Glaswegian <laughs> with, one. Exactly. Not, with not, the, the, not the Boston Celtics. With, so. Yeah, Glasgow Celtic, exactly. You've which got, is, you've got is, Glasgow heritage as well. Yeah, my, you? my yeah. parents are Glasgow and Paisley. Yeah, we were talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, the last time I watched the ball game, uh, I left before the end of it. It was... It went on. It was in Toronto. It went on for hours. Yeah, yeah. We were there for about five hours or which something. Is, which is my other, um, my other home. And mm. yeah, I mean, honestly, the Sky Dome was remarkable when it was first put up, and then it's just sat empty for years yeah. after the, the the baseball strike in well, the nineties. One of my favorite things at that baseball game was that they had, you know, they have fun games between the innings. Yeah. So one of the games that they had was a cookie stacking contest. So it struck me as quite a Canadian thing to do. So people were, mm-hmm. uh, people were uh, competing to see how many cookies they could stack up. And the prize was a ride on lawnmower. That was the thing that you could win. <laughs> so they presented the ride on lawnmower to the winner of the, of mm-hmm. the cookie, cookie stacking contest, yeah. which was nice. But anyway, just to paint a picture for people of where we are, there's these kind of red brick buildings all around the edge of the park. Um, very American, kind of inner city style of architecture that you kind of see in uh, places like New York and Boston. Um, very, very handsome old, handsome old buildings. And then, yeah, the park has got all these little... Little nooks, yeah, a tennis court, the play, children's playground, the basketball, and yeah, let's walk over to where the yeah, little sure. little league is. Yeah. Um, and there, there is there is a very um, interesting residual house before the historical took oh, took over this neighborhood again. Yeah. So, like I was saying, in the seventies, it was basically a free for all mm. around here, and you'll see just up the street, there's um, this series of plaster castings against a facade that's just totally crazy yeah um that's so very <laughs> ma- almost like some kind of um uh it's like something from barcelona right yeah, like, a, like a kind of gaudi very, style yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. thing on top mm-hmm. um, all the little kids are uh, they look so cute in their little baseball outfits like yeah even even though it's, it's even amazing. though it's overcast the park is alive and yeah everyone's uh, coming yeah everyone's coming here to hang out and yeah, and it's a popular, popular place, right? It ends up being like this all summer, and it's only increased in popularity in the last yeah. few years. Um, there is kind of a, an, a, a, let's call it a lackadaisical um, policing of the park. So right. open containers are not turned away in certain <laughs> circumstances. Right. Um, picnics are encouraged. Yeah. Uh, right now, the Little League game is in full effect and there's a bunch of people hanging out and watching. Yeah, people watching their, watching their kids play in Little League, which is a very, very, very sweet sight. Yeah. Is, it, is it true that in, um, in American parks, you don't generally... People aren't, people aren't really allowed to drink so much? Because in Britain, lots and lots of people in the summer go to the park and get mm-hmm. drunk and kind of socialise there, but... That's not such a such a thing here, right? I mean, as 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 you know, a new American uh, twenty years ago, and literally a new American um, in in twenty nineteen when I became a citizen, I honestly, growing up, thought that it was just blanket free for all mm. in the states, <laughs> and quickly discovered that every state has as 
you know you might expect at this point. Every state has its own rules about yeah, things, right? And so it varies state by state. But then it also varies town by town. So when I moved here, um, there were still dry towns around Boston itself, and in Boston, in particular, like it was very religious, and you couldn't get uh, served on a Sunday. Mm. So wow. to see to see that move and yeah. have um, now there's now there's beer gardens and parks and uh, lots of encouragement not encouragement but say like allowable mm. consumption going on yeah um, in, in multiple multiple forms so like you know, on the other side where we're we're moving towards here there's like a kid's birthday party probably a toddler one. Um, and I've had many toddler parties in this yeah. park, both for my children and other families. And, you know, the part of that <laughs> toddler party and being in a park is you can just sit there and have a drink, have, have a drink while the kids are playing. Yeah, maybe, you know? maybe if you've got kids, that's the <laughs> thing that you really need to have just to, Absolutely. to chill, chill you out. People who were just playing basketball here, I've just been watching Winning Time, the show about the L.A. Lakers. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, getting very very invested in basketball at the moment <laughs> um, but yeah it's it's really cool to see those uh see those kind of sports things that uh sort of define america really basketball and baseball just being played played in the park mm-hmm. um chris did you, did you find talking about children since you since you had kids did you find yourself coming to the park more like taking your kids here it's kind of the first place that you come i think isn't it when you're when you're a kid like yeah hang out at the park a lot right so the the kids park here, um, I want to say, showed up about twelve or thirteen years ago, a couple of years before we had ours, and was uh, um, another sign that this neighborhood was changing. In addition, we're walking by an open green space, but we just passed by a formal dog park. Yeah. And previously, there was an informal dog park, uh, which occupied the space that we're yeah. looking at. Um, and people just put up with it because the neighborhood was changing. But the, the kids' playground um, spent more hours probably than in architecture school uh, hanging out there. It's divided, it's divided into two places, and they're, they're both as, um, more dangerous than I wanted them to be <laughs> as my kids are growing up. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a younger one and that is full of slides and lower slides and and climbing apparatuses and then there's another the older side which is full of like much more dangerous climbing apparatuses so my heart has been in my throat multiple times in this park over over by the kids playground maybe that dangerous part of the fun though isn't it it's yeah like learning it's like learning your limits yeah <laughs> you kind of learn that like tolerance to risk and it's building up your calluses yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. um do you remember when you were when you were young, like what kind of parks you went to as a as a toddler, as a kid, and a teenager? Which ones you were uh, you so, were going to? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The big ones that stand out for me. We moved to Canada when I was six months old, and then moved back to to London when I was seven, and then back to Canada when I was eight. So there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of moving around many, many towns and, and, and many um, overnights in, in relatives' houses uh, before moving back to Toronto. But I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto in the, in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, there were, there were school playgrounds and other things that happened. One of the, like, right, the school, the, the elementary school that I went to um, topographically was very... 
varied. And during the winter with snowstorms, parts of them became sledding hills and, and sledding um, sled jumps and ramps and other things that would really not not be advisable to my own children, but we did them. <laughs> uh, there are also we have a crying kid coming over. Yeah. Um, also, like a number of uh, asphalt levels that were were basically just open, and we used to ride BMX, uh, BMX bikes in them all the time. And uh, we that that was like really formative because you you really could have hurt yourself as a kid, but no one was really paying attention to you. <laughs> the other one, which um, is really present in my mind, was uh, which I would later. <laughs> it becomes incredibly influential it was a place called Ontario Place um, which is a Zeidler-Roberts partnership uh, an, an architecture firm in Toronto in the 70s and 80s and it's essentially an archogram floating city with a geode geodesic dome in the middle of it uh, combined with amphitheaters and leisure um, places and one of them was a children's playground there's a video of it on YouTube that um, I, I look at occasionally to kind of remember what was going on, but it's basically an open, free-to-go uh, project of the probably the federal Canadian government, and someone needs to do a real archival dive into it. But had all these like fantastic floating opportunities that were like over Lake Ontario, and you could do paddle boats um, around and in through all these superstructures, cool. and then go into the geodesic dome to see um, IMAX movies and it turns out that that was the uh, friends of mine in, in the just before I went back to grad school um, got tickets to the Toronto premiere of Train Spotting on IMAX in that geodesic dome in that so, yeah. <laughs> kind of brilliant yeah <laughs> um, it's since it, it, it's lost its it's kind of gloss and the I think the province is still trying to figure out to, what to do with it um, it still hosts music festivals and, and other things but yeah that thing like just rocked my world when I was a kid yeah. and led to you then getting an interest in uh, the kind of uh, modern architecture that I guess we started talking about um, a few years ago when yeah maybe I was yeah. I was writing about brutalism and yeah thinking about these super super kind of futuristic uh, things that we were coming up with in the, mm -hmm. especially in the 60s, right, in the 70s. I mean, Toronto was epicenter for that mm -hmm. um, in Canada. Like, you know, there's the centennial projects that happened in 67 around um, around Canada's, the celebrations of its centennial. But there were also, like, a remarkable number of concrete buildings that were going up um, in the early 70s, before I was born, um, CN Tower being the most obvious, um, and Ontario Place being another. Scarborough uh, College. Yeah, absolutely. That's a nice one. Scarborough College, uh, the Ontario Science Center, mm. um, Robarts Library, yeah. uh, just a remarkable number of experimental concrete buildings, which um, I'm going to forget their names right now. Yeah, there's so many in Toronto, isn't there? Yeah, and in Montreal as well. There's, there's, really there's, a, there's a really, there's a really brilliant book that was put out um, before Heroic, called Concrete Toronto, which examines all of that, um, and it, it's well worth 
uh, seeking out because it's 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 it documents that phase of Toronto's evolution. Yeah, and you mentioned Heroic, which is the great book uh, that you co-authored um, about the modern architecture that we find here in in Boston. So I wrote uh, I wrote a book about brutalism a few years ago, um, and then a, a sort of follow on follow on in a way talking about the the projects that weren't realized but i remember reading about what you guys were doing and thinking how interesting it was that you were using that term heroic and talk us through maybe where that came from why you wanted mm-hmm. to, to to use that term heroic rather than maybe brutalist or something else that people were, were saying sure so brutalism as a term it's it's um provenance is not completely figured out some people attribute it to Corb's embracement of it with, you know, Art Brute and, and other avenues. Um, some people point to uh, Allison and Peter Smithson and Rainer Banham's use of the new brutalism. And brutalism there has been you know, alluded to uh, a nickname that Allison called Peter, which was Brutus. Um, so that always seemed specious to us and didn't describe the project in a way that was satisfying. Um, it also is not a great thing to call <laughs> what we feel are like substantial contributions to mid-century modernism. Yeah. Um, and so Heroic uh, also starts from Allison and Peter and the heroic period of modern architecture. Um, and also uh, Venturi Scott Brown's um, look at the heroic versus the ordinary. And for us, it was, you know, this idea of, of expanding that dichotomy or, like, investigating the dichotomy between the either-or, the ugly and the beautiful, or the, the brutal and the beautiful, um, and really trying to make a nuanced argument about what these buildings are trying to do. But at the same time that we love the buildings, we also acknowledge their faults. And so Heroic brings to mind the idea that the greatest heroes, uh, you know, the Achilles heel, Icarus flying too close to the sun, um, did things that were meant to be... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Better for the, the greater good, but had inherent faults that they didn't see while they were happening. And that didn't see while they were happening was the thing that we wanted to emphasize because all too often... The work gets lumped in with the architect as the evil fingered twiddler <laughs> um, planning to destroy humanity, where our experience with talking to the people who made these buildings, sadly most of whom have, have, have passed away in the interim, um, that was not it at all. They were entirely invested in architecture as a social act much in a much more radical way than the modernist high-rises and, and office buildings of, of the, the 50s and 60s and I'm, I'm a complete fan of all of the Mies van der Rohe buildings but the 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 the, 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 the kind of simplistic reduction of this period of, of concrete civic and, and educational cultural architecture, particularly in America, um, was has been completely mischaracterized in the intervening years. Yeah, and particularly in Boston, we see a lot of really, really impressive examples of brutalist architecture. I wrote about some of them in my book, and I specifically wanted to come. Uh, come here and look at them. Um, the City Hall in Boston is really an incredible building, unlike um, a City Hall that you've probably uh, seen anywhere else in the world. It's this incredible sort of upside-down ziggurat um, with these incredible spaces inside and this raw concrete on the outside. It's really uh, a re- really uh, stunning uh, set piece for the city. And then the Government Centre, which Paul Rudolph designed... Uh, which houses various government facilities, uh, which sound quite promising, like a unemployment department, a mental health department. But the building itself is very, very impressive and very like you know, being in a kind of sci-fi movie or something, isn't it, with all the sweeping mm-hmm. staircases and levels. I mean, they're very impressive examples, and there's a lot of that architecture here in the city, isn't it? We were talking about the urban renewal thing, like how they were trying to give the city like a new status and a new sheen almost in the 60s right by building all these new all these new buildings right and i think that we used to call the city hall the third rail of our argument because as soon as we brought up boston city hall everyone would scream at us and i think in the intervening decade um well, a little bit more than a decade since we started the project, City Hall seen a resurgence and a reinvestment in, in its future. Um, urban renewal is now that third rail where, um, again, the nuance of 
the intentions of the project have been erased in favor of very simplistic arguments like urban renewal displaced uh, populations, urban renewal was responsible for the eradication of culture, urban renewal was um, used in a way to emphasize white supremacy and, and against the embedded identities of people who live there. And all of that is 100% true. Um, at the same time, the argument, the, the, the nuanced argument, or the, not the nuanced argument, but the more complex argument about urban renewal needs to look at who owned those buildings, what was the upkeep of the structures that were there, what was the impending economic, cultural, and social impact of just maintaining the status quo to a number of cities in the United States. Um, what was going to happen to the populations that lived there who would have, would have faced, if not simil similar, if, if, if not more radical displacement um, by gentrification? None of these are excuses, but they're ways, different lenses by which to re-interrogate what urban renewal meant to the United States at that moment. Um, and for us, particularly in Boston, the argument is incredibly, or the history is incredibly complex. And yeah. our work is not argumentative. It's more to shine light on these the different the different angles through which you need to understand urban renewal. The, the accepted wisdom of urban renewal in, in the city of Boston is it eradicated the, the West End and government center. Um, it displaced multiple families, including Leonard Nimoy's. Um, it destroyed a number of immigrant communities and made the city a worse place to be. The inverse of that is that before those clearances happened, the houses had no electricity, no running water, um, there were illegal gas hookups, um, there, was, there was no, no plumbing. Uh, they were basically slums, yeah. which is not a, not a great word to use, but that's, that's what was happening. Also, the city had not seen significant development of its urban fabric for decades. There had been no new investments um, in transforming the city. There had been a remarkable lack of um, transparency in, in, not transparency, a remarkable lack of um, ideas about the city itself. And so urban renewal pre presented a way for urban centers Boston being one, Pittsburgh being another, others that didn't quite fare as well, um, to transform themselves in the face of what the Boston Globe called the, the danger of falling into the backwaters of history into something thriving and, and unique. Um, not arguing that it was all right, 
again going back to that idea of heroic and the the Achilles heel, there is a lot wrong with it. Yeah. But we're sitting in a thriving park in a fairly demographically diverse neighborhood. The South End is remarkably inaffordable for a lot of people and the new some of the new developments that we're looking at reinforce that but like a few blocks from us in the 40s and in the 70s there was like serious social housing investment in the neighborhood which have made open spaces like this available to large um, and diverse parts of the south end community and we saw that in baseball field and and other places here but um, without that project without the the federal investment of dollars i don't think we would be standing here. I think that we, we would be in a much more um, depressed and economically stagnant place. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a complexity, isn't there, to to the to the arguments and the the the, the demolitions. I think are the, the kind of they're one of the problematic things. I remember reading about those. Um, and then I guess now, like, what, I guess one of the reasons that I thought well now is the time to write about this style of architecture is because those buildings are now threatened with demolition it's all it's come full circle and you see around the world lots of buildings from that era being demolished because politicians sometimes don't like them and i was with a guy in a bar the other day he was telling me how ugly he thought government center was um uh, i think i think people's People's kind of, you know, these things go in and out of fashion, don't they? I think people's views are maybe changing a bit now. I think they can see that there's uh, a reason why these buildings were built the way they were, and there's also a kind of beauty that you can see in them. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're kind of threatened, aren't they? So we had these demolitions in order for this kind of, like, 1960s city of cars and city of the future to be built, and now we see a lot of those brutalist buildings being threatened with demolition. But it seems to me quite important that we preserve that part of our history, right? These are, these are things that we want to show our children. We don't just want to knock them all down, right? Yeah, and I think, I think the term preservation is, is a loaded one. I think part of our work has been preservation through, um, through writing mm. and through interviewing the people who made the projects. Um, part of our work is preservation with conservation management plans that we've we've we did one for boston city hall uh and then part of our 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 practice is is about um being a thorn in the side of people who just want to tear shit down yeah (laughs) um and rudolph seems to be the the most um the the favorite punching bag of demolition these days and like you're saying uh government service center um is is now under under threat of demolition part of it anyways at least half of it the other the other half is supposedly um good enough to to leave up yeah which is crazy because he's one he's one of the greatest architects of the 20th century and when you look at the office buildings he made and his art school in yale which is a fantastic Mm -hmm. exciting building and he did he did a corporate hq which is being knocked down at the moment i forget which um which one that is um there's they're, they're all they're all kind of going and the the he did the one in goshen didn't he in new york for the 
for the it's city. For Orange County, yeah. Yeah, and, Orange and, County. And they're, they're, all, they're all being taken down. But he, this is a guy who was seriously talented. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame, isn't it, to, to lose, lose that part of our history. It, it, it is. And, you know, Rudolph in particular, um, we've seen it in, in Buffalo with Shoreline Apartments. Um, I, I did an exhibition a few years ago called Brutal Destruction, which is mm. highly aesthetic photography of concrete buildings being torn down um, from Robin Hood Lane to um, you know why the the theaters in, in Baltimore and other structures in, in various parts of um, North America uh, there's just a going going back to something you said earlier the cyclical nature of it it's it's something that we've started introducing um, to the way in which we talk about these, which is what we call um, escape from ugly valley, and or in the inverse, um, ascending monstrous mountain. And as part of this research, we started seeing concrete monstrosity um, referred to all the time with regards to brutalist buildings. That this is a concrete monstrosity; it deserves to be torn down. Um, and a certain search engine's online dictionary, if you look up the word concrete, um, immediately associates it with a concrete monstrosity, an excretience building concrete. So this idea that there are these monsters that exist in as like static buildings was very intriguing to me. And so we started to rewind and look at the last combination of an architectural style with uh, with a monster and if you go back 50 years on the again that same search engine when you could search historical books the closest historical period was Victorian and you start to see all of these references in newspapers and popular press about Victorian monstrosities and how they're dark, and how they're they can't be transformed, and how they're like uh, aggressive and not good for people, and the exact same arguments that are being made about brutalist architecture, and you see these 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 ebbs and flows. So the monstrous mountain and the ugly valley. So and and it typically is around a 50-year um, wave, and so that that 50 years is literally the the transition point between abject hatred <laughs> and renewed interest or renewed um, investment and w- w- we're lucky enough to see a couple of successive mayors first in, in, in Marty Walsh and now in Michelle Wu um, Michelle Wu is an unabashed fan of the building Marty Walsh uh, came to it after, after a while and his um, chief of policy Joyce Linehan was crucial to having an investment in both the building and, and the plaza and the plaza is now being transformed by Sasaki into a 100% accessible landscape which we're cursorily involved with um, and we thought we were done with the, the concrete destruction, brutal destruction in the city but now we're, we're faced with this Rudolph one Yeah, and it is quite cool isn't it to see Michelle Wu um, singing the praises of uh, 
holding an Instagram live, yeah. like walking around the building, right. talking about the the benefits and yeah. great spaces that Michael McKinnell and Gerhard Kalman made. Yeah, very, 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 very cool to see that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's important for people to realise that um, brutalist architecture doesn't have to be scary. I mean, it, <laughs> sure, we've played the great. Sometimes can be quite scary, um, but a lot of that's down to maybe poor maintenance and. You know, Active neglect is what we call neglect, it. Neglect, yeah. right? Those kind of space. I, I always think the prob the problem was with the car, really. Like you know, the idea of like segregation on you know putting pedestrians on a on a high level, and then you just end up with these like weird undercrofts mm -hmm. where vehicles are supposed to go, and and you see like crazy things happening down there, which are not always um, not always friendly. But yeah, like Bruce's buildings can work really well. They can fit into the fabric of the city and. Um, they can be, they can be, they can be valuable. And you were talking about um, Robin Hood Gardens. For, for people that don't know, that was a housing project the Smithsons uh, did in, in East London, a very famous one at the time, which opened in 1972, um, and uh, pioneered their ideas of streets in the sky, where you would have these mm -hmm. uh, these concrete decks, which were supposed to replicate the street life that we're kind of seeing around us with people just hanging around and walking their dogs and kids playing. So they wanted to try and uh, recreate that so the people that lived in terraced houses could have, have those streets to go and, to go and play on. Uh, and it was you know, something that was written a lot about at the time. Um, there's an amazing documentary, which I'm sure you've seen, Chris, uh, made by B.S. Johnson, uh, where the Smithsons talk about their ideas and Alison wears this silvery space suit <laughs> in the documentary, which looks incredible. Um, but yeah, now that's, that's basically being knocked down as well, uh, which seems, seems like a shame uh, when it probably could have been repaired and, and made uh, yeah. worth, worthwhile, um, like some other, uh, some other places like Park Hill in Sheffield, kind of similar idea that I went to again mm -hmm. recently, which is being restored. Um, and talking about the idea of, you know, we've been talking a bit about parks today, and I thought that in Robin Hood Gardens, actually, the uh, the park that they made in the middle, I thought worked really well, actually, as a kind of uh, a, a sort of set piece with the the concrete architecture and then the greenery. Um, and pe people don't always think that the two things can go together. People think, oh, concrete is just concrete but actually this is something we were talking about when I was doing the, the book talk with um, with you guys a couple of days ago Chris we were talking about one of the parks that I like Freeway Park in Seattle which mixes these landscapes with kind of brutalist concrete and then the one that you mentioned which is quite near us in Boston the Josiah uh, Quincy School yeah yeah exactly mm -hmm. which is a, a park that kind of mixes I think we could probably see it from here yeah. if, we, if we if we squinted a bit, but yeah, yeah it's um, it's a public high school, mm. uh, grade grade school, high school hybrid, but also mm. a series of residential towers uh, that were done by the Architects Collaborative um, in the you know in the mid '60s, if I'm re recalling correctly. But yeah, it's like a it's a very much the same kind of hardscape landscape. Um, that you know, sponsors or is able to be sponsored by the the high school program below and a YMCA that's adjacent, um, and it's also like brings uh, elevational ideas from you know Smithsons and and the more residential brutalism of of the UK 
to the American version or the you know the the North American version, not a lot of those kind of housing projects, even with even with like the influence of Corbusier um, and the the Unité, which is celebrating its its own anniversaries, um, that kind of brutalist housing project never ended up here. Um, it was really an educational, cultural, and civic mm. thing that happened for obvious reasons, I think, which is because there was a, a massive amount of government money that was being spent on this work, and it, it happened to coincide with um, an investigation of, of material and a reaction against uh, institutional corporate modernism of the 50s and 60s. Um, but yeah, that, that whole idea of public landscapes um, and having them be on, on multiple levels uh, is, is really emphatic in that, in that project yeah. in have a remarkable you, way. Have you ever worked on parks? Have you ever designed any kind of parks or landscapes? Or is that something you've ever thought about doing? Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we do a lot of work um, on much larger scale parks with uh, a, a couple of um, landscape firms. Uh, we've worked with Scape. New York-based landscape office on a, um, a now on hold proposal for Boston's downtown waterfront, which is a much more um, active, like promenade, flaneur type park of movement. Uh, and then with Reed Hildebrand, who are another great landscape, um, renowned international landscape office located in Cambridge. Um, on a couple of strange projects, not strange, but interesting projects. Uh, one is Franklin Park, which is a, one of the Olmstead parks in the city of Boston, a massive um, park which has a golf course, a zoo, a hospital, trails, camping, right in the middle of the city of Boston. And so they're we're working with them on a, a on a action plan to reinvent it for right. the 21st century. And then the, the other one is looking at the city as a park. And with them, we, we worked with the city of Cambridge on, on what was called an urban forest master plan. So how do you keep the idea of a park present in a city which is losing tree canopy? Even though there's like trees everywhere around us here and the city is, the, sorry, Boston and Cambridge are cities of trees. There's a real tree and canopy deficit for the kind of climate change that's happening. So it was a real um, great opportunity for, for us and Reed Hildebrand to help the city of Cambridge uh, think of itself as a park, as opposed to thinking of itself as an urban space. Um, and that, so yeah, we've worked on parks, but not in the most uh, yeah. <laughs> straightforward way. They all sound really interesting. Chris, I think we'll, we'll round it off there, but tell me, um, just briefly, what you what you guys are kind of working on for the future? Do you have any more books lined up, or like the next projects that you're uh, you're looking at doing? A couple of books. Uh, always always working on books. Um, always developing books. Always trying to get books made, whether it's by us or, or yeah. other people. We'll, because we'll do books book. matter. We'll do a book. Absolutely. <laughs> um, our, our, the the practice itself uh, over under is everything from we call it like if you want something designed we'll do it um, but right now working on uh, like I said City Hall Plaza with Sasaki um, working on a number of uh, interesting 
reinvention projects around the state of Massachusetts with the Massachusetts Development Corporation post-COVID, how do you make smaller cities in the state um, revitalize themselves after the trauma of the last couple of years, whether it's through reinvestment in their urban core and retail or wayfinding or bringing people back to places that they just don't feel comfortable going to. Um, and, and then just like hosting events at the, at the gallery to try and be part of the, the conversation about what architecture means to our larger community. Yeah, I think you should do more of those. When I do, yeah. my, uh, when I do my next, well, when we do our book together, Absolutely. I'll come back. I'll do another book talk because it was fun, uh, fun to do that book talk the other night. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, it was a pleasure to walk around Peter's Park with you today. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Appreciate Cheers, it. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Park Date. Um, there's lots more where that came from and there'll be more in the future as well. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review, um, good or bad, make them funny, I'll be reading out the best ones, and there'll be a prize for the one that makes me laugh the most. Name check some trees in your reviews and leave them wherever you get your podcast from. Check out our website, parkdate.co.uk, and um, if you see me walking around in a park... Come and say hello. I think that was the sound of someone sneezing. Um, yes. Thank you. Bye-bye. On the next episode of Park Date, our American adventure continues. I'll be quizzing the students of Kim and Chloe Kardashian Elementary School all 300 students, aged between 5 and 8 years old, will respond to the question, what do you like to do in the park at the same time? Plus, in an exclusive podcast stalwart and former Commander-in-Chief, Barack Obama joins me. I'll be asking Barack to list the balls that he likes to play sports with in his local park, Grant Park. Chicago. Um, soccer ball, basketball, football, rugby ball, hockey ball, uh, bowling ball, uh, ice ball, softball, volleyball. Snooker ball, uh, snooker ball. So do stay tuned because all that and more will be hitting your ears on the next episode of Park Date.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.